the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. to lucky number seven of our inferno coverage seven's lucky right is seven supposed to be lucky sure i i, I don't play craps except on taco night <laughs> but it's guys we've got a long way if you don't remember and i understand if you don't my name is james hickson and i'm trey lawson and we have returning with us today a repeat guest we are always honored and a little bit surprised to get those it is our good friend chad bowers that's right writer of or co-writer of x-men 90s give me the title again because i always forget which year it's the the astonishing adventures of the x-men in the year 1992 92 because ever since disney plus announced the follow-up show i've been mixing up the year on it i do it too don't because yeah, theirs is 97 right right <laughs> which, so which, X-Men which, I take, which i take no credit for Either no, right. either no credit or all credit. <laughs> You've also written Deadpool. You have written Youngblood. All, all kinds of cool, awesome things. And but, but I think today probably the X Men writing will will matter most in terms of <laughs> what we're talking about. Yeah. And lovely listeners, on the day you get this episode, you can actually, while listening to this episode, get in your car drive down to your local comic shop and pick up a brand new comic book written co-written by yourself is that right mr bowers oh yeah man i i'm i am the scripter on the current deadpool batter blood miniseries which is a follow-up that i'm doing with with deadpool creator co-creator rob liefeld it is a follow-up to our hit original hardcover graphic novel from a few years ago deadpool bad blood and uh, this one is bigger and badder and bloodier and just all around, just a, just an incredible, it's just a lot of fun. So yeah, it's in source today. today. Number three is in source today. Number four, I think, is going to be out in just a couple of weeks. So yeah, run out, pick it up, give it a read. Uh, I'm having the time of my life on this book. It's a lot of fun. Rob is obviously just the funnest guy to work with. So, and he's just got more energy than, I mean, it's almost impossible to keep up with him, but it's a lot of fun. So yeah, go and pick it up and uh, yeah, keep, keep your ear to the ground for other stuff coming up. Yeah, you just shared the cover with me, and it scared the crap out of me. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I was not expecting such sharp teeth. <laughs> so yeah, guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, it's like it's like my favorite. It's like my favorite cover. It's like my favorite cover of the the series so far. And there've been a lot of great covers. There's a lot of variant covers on this one too. But this one, I feel like, is is really just an incredible image. It's a very striking, you know, tight, tight close up of Venom Pool. And uh, I think it's great. I think it's going to really stand out on shelves. Rob's like outdone himself on this one. So that was that was a problem I had when the the Snake Eyes miniseries was coming out. Was there were a lot of variants to choose from. A lot of them looked really cool. 
Yeah, no, we, we, I also did that, if, if you don't know, if your listeners don't know, I also did that book with Rob Liefeld, too, it, in Snake Eyes Dead Game, a G.I. Joe, I think it's G.I. Joe, colon, Snake Eyes, colon, Dead Game. Colon, get your checks. Colon, get it. <laughs> yeah, no, that book was a blast, too, but I think the first issue, <laughs> yeah, that's all right, right? I think the I think the first uh, I think the first issue had I, I don't I don't even think I'm exaggerating here something like 40 covers because there were a lot of uh, store incentive covers and stuff like that so stores could get specific covers you know you know created for their uh, for their store with their own branding and stuff like that on the back cover and uh, you know IDW was generous enough to send me uh, several copies of each and I uh, it was a fun day when that bo- <laughs> when those when those boxes I was going to say when that box arrived but when those boxes arrived there was some really <laughs> cool stuff so uh, yeah that was a lot of fun. What's funny about those covers is that book was coming out, obviously, in the pandemic. So there were certain covers for that particular series that were for that were that would have been like convention exclusives for conventions that ultimately either had to cancel or didn't happen. So there are several. Those really are sort of collectors. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of those that are really hard to get. So hit me up at cons. That's what I'm saying. It's like it's like 1980s American Olympics team merchandise. Yeah. Uh, yeah. History teacher reference. Hello. Sorry. Uh, yeah. But, you know, usually when we have a guest on, we ask them to give their history with the X-Men in a segment we've been calling Previously on X-Men. But we've kind of had that with you already when we did the... We've kind of had done that already with you when we had you on for our X-Vampires episode. You gave yeah. us a little bit of Yeah, you did. And, and you, know, you know, I don't remember where I sort of, like, started that that story but if i remember correctly because i mean there there's a lot of truth to this inferno was was one of my first uh, was one of my first x-men books what was the what was the uh, making making sure i'm not misremembering my stories here but the uh, what's the what's the the, the issue that follows the i don't, I don't want to like blow what we're doing today but the x-factor issue that we're doing leads into x-men 2 is it for 242 what is that number 242 yeah 242 yeah. I got that at the Eastland Mall in Charlotte, North Carolina around Christmas that year. And uh, just remember opening that cover and there's that, again, we're not talking about this one. This one's probably going to be on your next episode. So whoever your next guest is, just know that I would have fought for this issue had I known what the issues are going to be. But no, 242 opens with that like uh, that big Jean Grey, that big tight close-up on, on Wolverine kissing Jean Grey. And, uh, and then there, then you turn the page and it's like this amazing two-page spread by Mark Silvestri of like everybody. So it's like all the X-Men at the time, the, the Outback X-Men, and then it's X-Factor and, you know, Madeline. And uh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's really like, yeah. he, oh, he, he really brings it. I mean, it again, what an Absolutely amazing, like uh, just an amazing bench of talent for this particular crossover. I'm sure we'll talk about some of the art as we go through here, but I mean, you've got, you know, Ramita Jr., you've got Simonson, you've got Alan Davis, Davis. <laughs> you've got, like you said, the aforementioned Mark, Mark Silvestri. I mean, it's just, Speaking it's of just awesome a, delivery, yeah, yeah, murderer's row of guys on these books. It's just yeah. amazing. Who, oh, and, 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 I, I forgot Brett Blevins. Brett Blevins on, on New Mutants. Right, was on New Mutants. Yeah. 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 And then that doesn't even include like everybody else that's on the other books. Like, cause you've got, you know, right. McFarlane on Spider-Man. Emma on Spider-Man. Yeah, you yeah. know, of Spider-Man. Still doing. Exterminators. Yeah. I see, yeah. I think the Exterminators awesome. is part of it too, right? And then I'm trying it to remember. Oh, yeah. Remember, it is. yeah. I forget who's doing, I, I forget who's doing Fantastic Four. I know there's some Fantastic Four issues. It might be Al Milgram and uh, Joe Sennett. 
but I can't remember specifically who it is on, on that. I know Joe Sin is the anchor at one point in that run. But. Anyway, just a really, really amazing, talented group of people working on these books. And like, so yeah, this is, so the long, the long answer to a question you didn't really ask me a second time <laughs> is, you know, like this, this is sort of my, 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 you know, GI Joe was my entry point. I think is what I answered last time. But when it comes to X Men and the Marvel Marvel Universe, this is sort of really where I started like getting into it. Very nice. And for our listeners, we are covering this episode: New Mutants number seventy three, Excalibur number six and seven, Daredevil number two sixty five, and X Factor number thirty seven. That's right. It's a it's an interesting mix this time. So why don't we go ahead and take a quick break? And we'll be right back for a look at the double-sized <laughs> New Mutants number 73, right after these messages. Do you like spooky movies? Hair-raising tales. Insightful criticism. Judgmental hot takes. Then you're going to love horror business. The horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Donald. And I'm Justin Lore. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great, or maybe not great. <laughs> Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products. New mutants are dangerous. That's why you're here. Ooh, scary. This isn't a hospital. It's a cage. Together, we can get out of here. That thing will kill you! He's right, it's magic! So am I. The New Mutants. That was so hot. Rated PG-13, April 3rd. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our first issue is The New Mutants, number 73, a double-sized spectacular. Cover date is March 1989, written by Louise Simonson, pencils by Brett Blevins, inks by Mike Manley and Al Williamson, colors by Glennis Oliver, letters by Joe Rosen, and the editors are Bob Harris, Daryl Edelman, and Mark Okay, so... Sim and Ileana are in the midst of their fight from last issue, and Ileana has coated herself in her dark child armor that is protecting her from the transmode virus, and Ileana ta- taunts Sim that he couldn't kill her as a child and he won't do so now. Sim counters that she only survived because Nastir was protecting her, and Ileana says that Nastir may have abandoned her but only because uh, Nastir thinks that she will destroy Sim. She cuts through him with the soul sword, but he is able to piece himself back together because of the techno-organic virus. And meanwhile, various members of the New Mutants and the Exterminators are recovering in a church following their big battle over the streets of Manhattan. Danny is seeing death all around her. She's having premonitions, her Valkyrie powers, Warlock, Sam... Rain, Roberto, Richter, and Boom Boom are all flying around in search of Ileana. They end up fighting a piece of the street that has come to life and creating these weird curves and, and odd angles around Not them. The Grant Morrison character. It looks like the cars are coming to life as well. 
Right. Yes, this is not Danny the Street. <laughs> this is a different street. More like sort of mirror universe version of Danny the Street. Yeah, I see a lot, a lot meaner um, than Danny. Yeah. Yeah. While that fight is happening, Colossus turns up, which is sort of with no shirt on. Colossus turns up. Sorry. Yes, he did, he this is have a shirt this on is <laughs> shirtless Colossus, full metal skin, just punching demons left and right demanding to know where Ileana is. The demons explain that she's no longer the ruler of Limbo, and then they somehow get the upper hand on Colossus and drag him away, planning to offer him to Sim as a Elsewhere, above the inner circle, or above the, the Hellfire Club, the inner circle is battling demons. So Magneto is there, and Emma Frost is there, and I guess it's Sebastian Shaw and Celine. And... Nastir appears to Magneto offering a truce because they both share the goal of world domination. <laughs> Magneto says no, Ileana rules Limbo, but Nastir fills him in that the Dark Child and Sim will destroy each other, leaving Nastir to pick up the pieces. We don't see Magneto's reply because we cut again to some of the New Mutants and Exterminators flying around on Warlock now superhero mode with a red cape. They see Magneto on the roof of that building talking to Nastir, which makes them think that he is turning his back on them or betraying them, sowing the seeds of future distrust in later issues. And back with Colossus, the demons drag him in. Sem gloats over both him and Ileana. Ileana jumps in to protect her brother, but also is sort of in denial. She's a as far as she's concerned, Colossus is dead because the X-Men were killed in Dallas and they've not revealed themselves to the public yet. More on that later. But for now, everyone thinks they're dead. And so Ileana continues the fight as Colossus struggles to regain consciousness. Just then Warlock spots Ileana from above and the, the flying members of the New Mutants and Exterminators swoop down to investigate and try to help. Warlock knocks Sim out of the way and grabs Ileana, and they crash in a, into a pawn shop. In the pawn shop, one of the sort of objects on display sort of comes to life and taunts them some more. Colossus dives through the window with Sim, and the fight continues, and Colossus is in shock at what his sister has become. And just then, Ileana opens up one of her stepping portals and she and the other mutants fall through, leaving Sim and Colossus to fight. There is more fighting between Sim and Colossus. Meanwhile, in Limbo, the new mutants beg Ileana to come back to them and to not fully embrace her dark side. Ileana has sort of given up on that. She says the time for that has passed and that she needs to take control of Limbo once again. Meanwhile, there is more fighting between Colossus and Sim. And also, the mutants who were left at the chapel are now fighting off hordes of demons who are trying to get to the babies once again. Because, in case you forgot, there's still a bunch of babies in that chapel that were previously used to create a flaming pentagram in the sky. <laughs> because this because this event is awesome. <laughs> Someday, that will be uh, some X characters. Right, they were know, one of the babies. Story. <laughs> like, yeah, I was kidnapped during I'm waiting for that to be, like, a new version yeah. of Ghost Rider or something. <laughs> okay, they continue fighting. Danny 
is still overwhelmed by the premonitions of death to the point that she collapses. Ileana is watching this from her throne in Limbo, and the rest of the mutants in Limbo essentially try to use the rules of Limbo to their advantage, because all time happens simultaneously in Limbo. It's outside of time. And so they resolve that just like they did once before, they can find baby Ileana and somehow prevent her from becoming the version of Ileana that is now sitting on the throne in them. And so they're jumping through portals, trying to get to the right time and place. And they finally get to Ileana only to immediately tumble through another portal and land right in front of the Dark Child version. Dark Child smacks baby Ileana away and is glowing with hellish power and Rain jumps between them and offers her a choice that, that she could choose to let let herself live a different life by, by not attacking the past version. She starts glowing with power. A pillar of fire sweeps across the earth, pulling demons back into limbo. And what you, Ileana... What was that last thing that, you said? So a pillar of fire sweeps across the earth, pulling demons back into limbo. All right, cool. Just want to make sure. <laughs> uh, and Dark Child hurls her soul sword, fashioned from the darkest, most powerful piece of her soul, into the portal, into the depths of Limbo. At the same time, Sim is also pulled into the portal, and it seems like the worst of Inferno has passed. Danny regains consciousness, her premonitions of death have vanished, the demons are, are floating away, Gossamer, who... Frankly, we haven't seen all issue shows up, and all that's left of Ileana is her broken armor, causing Colossus to be quite sad. And so Danny and Rain are comforting each other. Colossus is holding the armor in despair, and just then he realizes that inside the remains of Ileana's outfit is the child version of Ileana that they had pulled from the past. As all of this is happening and everyone is happy and and compressing from the events that have transpired, Nastir is watching from above. As he does. Yep. And and musing on how his demons have been swept away, Sim has been removed from play, and that even though it seems like the children have succeeded, that he still has his own plans. And and as he says this, he's thinking of Madeline Pryor and her baby son. Man, they were not kidding about double size. Were There's they? a lot in this issue. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's a really, really significant issue as far as like the X Men continuity time. This is, the, I think, the first time one of the, I guess you would say, Westchester mutants has become aware. One of the New York mutants has become aware that hey, one of the main team of the X Men is yeah. actually still alive. Yeah. Also, I don't know what it is, but like the whole Brett Blevins issue we had last time when we had our Thor expert on and we kind of were like kind of creeped up with the artwork that wasn't really that much of an issue this time around not so much no it helped that Ileana was in the the armor for most of the issue yeah Chad in the previous issue of New Mutants yeah. Ileana's demon form yeah given what age she's supposed to be is a little bit creepy in that way that yeah. 80s comics art could sometimes be yeah well that, that's a thing like and, and I'm a fan of Brett Blevins but 
you know, his his stuff tends to sometimes, especially his, like like female characters, tend to sometimes lean a little towards the cheesecakey side of things. Yeah, uh, it was it was they, very you know, pinup. Yeah, yeah. So that that that's that's certainly one of his things. And uh, yeah, I, I don't particularly remember that issue. I'm sure I've got it or I've seen it and read it, but I, I don't remember specifics. But yeah, I, I, that that that's always a risk in a book like New Mutants or Teen Titans or anything like that. You know, yeah. is 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 going a little too uh, going going in, in, in a little too I guess in that direction with characters right. who are you know typically like sixteen or younger. So- how do we feel about the status change? Well, it's, I mean, it, it's a status change that it's a it's a kind of a retcon or, or a reset, you know? Yeah. yeah. They get to they get to kind of play it both ways. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I have to say I don't know where back. it's going because I I really haven't read a whole lot of this era of New Mutants. I've read you know Demon Bear from the, the beginning of it, and I've read later stuff going into the Liefeld run. But I haven't really read the Inferno. Stuff. It seems to be giving a happy ending for Ileana, which, of course, at, if you know any like X Men history, you know it's not going to last because no happy ending ever lasts in X Men. Yeah, well, and especially with a character like her, it can't. Right, and, and they've kind of always been trying. Like you know, the, the the idea would be that you get to see well, not quite adult Ileana, but aged up Ileana as the as the uh, the Dark Child. And then you do this reset where you you got to see her at that age, but now she's a child again, or a oh. you know, adolescent yeah. again. And then they immediately sort of set back on the path to get her to the other thing again. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it doesn't quite go yeah. in a different direction. It's like that's just her like that's just her path, regardless. Is it's sort of get her back I to that. I really like Colossus in this issue. I I always love it when he's fighting for his sister. That just. It's it seems and it is very in character for him. Yeah, it's always funny because it's like I, I look at Colossus and you know Colossus is technically I think at this this particular iteration of the X Men is still like the second youngest, so he's like probably closer in age to everyone to these New Mutants kids yeah. than than he is to the X Men at this point in time. Because <laughs> I mean he's like you know seventeen eighteen I think when he first comes in. And mm-hmm. you know, slide and scale Marvel, however it works. I mean, we're supposed to read him probably as as maybe twenty. I don't yeah. know, but it's interesting because he's 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 a young man. He's a very young man in the middle of all this. And uh, I always wonder if that's the reason. I mean, obviously, Ileana being his sister and stuff yeah. like that. But he always feels like he he almost fits into the New Mutants himself whenever they kind of cross paths. Yeah. Well, and even like you look at the characters that he tended to have closer relationships with, like like Shadowcat. Like mm-hmm. it's sort of the younger members of, of the X Men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely the two youngest in the new X Men. Or and when I think prior to her coming in, he is the youngest. Yeah, I also just Again. think that Colossus is so impressively. It's impressive the level of expression that that the art is able to capture because Colossus is a character who it's very easy to make feel statuesque and and mm-hmm. not as. But but in terms of body language, in terms of facial expressions this book does a lot with that character yeah Brad Evans is a great cartoonist I mean there's there's no getting around it he's just good I mean he's got some like he's got some mm-hmm. stuff that that strikes me as a little weird sometimes but I've always enjoyed him I mean obviously he he drew Sleepwalker yeah. you know and and that was a that was a big book for me when I was a kid too yeah yeah I've always I've always really <laughs> liked him but the, I, I, I gotta tell you though guys this issue I, I don't know this is a good issue <laughs> <I don't, laughs> 
I don't, I don't, I don't want to like you know be 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 too hard on her too. But I mean, it feels like it just goes on and on and on. So, and it's like maybe if I was reading the book month to month, and I feel like that's kind of always been a little bit of the uh, the 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 issue with New Mutants for me. It's a book that I don't necessarily, I never, I, I didn't click with it until like eighty seven when when Cable shows up. I'll be a hundred percent honest. I had a lot of issues and, and and certainly read them, but I don't know that it ever clicked with me. Yeah. Because it always, you know, and, and this is, I think, a risk of the X-Men books, too, is, you know, I'll be talking about the Daredevil issue in a second, <laughs> I think. But, you know, the X-Men's, the big risk of the X-Men is the X-Men are always kind of saving themselves, <laughs> you know? They're always kind of fighting themselves and saving themselves. And so there's all, and, and, and while I love the soap opera aspect of it, I think there's great stuff about that, you know. It just sometimes it gets like, oh, my God, guys, come on, let's do something else, you know? This just feels really, really you know, I, I'm a 40 something year old guy and, and I've read these issues over and over again when I was like, you know, 10 or 11, when I was like in my teens, when I was in my twenties and thirties and forties. <laughs> and for whatever reason, this time it, it definitely, more than any, this just feels almost impenetrable. It definitely feels like, they're... <laughs> and I probably have to do, it, it has a lot to do, I think with me just jumping into this issue and not having like sure. eased my way back into, you know, oh, this is what a Simonson Blevins comic feels like from 1989. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think when I started my Inferno coverage, like start my, my reading for Inferno, I started with the Magic miniseries from, I think, the early 80s, kind of like looking at her time in Limbo. And that kind of helped ease me into it and just, you know, it helped that we had just read that Dracula issue because that was just before that start that started going down. And then, but yeah, this 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 issue especially feels like they're just really dragging out that ending so they have more issues to fill into Inferno. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah the, the double-sized aspect of it is not doing it any favors in terms of pacing. Yeah. Because it, it really feels like, like you could probably take out all the stuff with Magneto. Um, mm-hmm. You could probably make the stuff in Manhattan and the stuff in Limbo two separate issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and I, and I try to, like, remember exactly how Magneto is presented in those issues, you know, when he becomes headmaster and, he, and, he, and he's their leader, you know, and there's that line, and you talked about it, Trey, when you were doing your recap, where, where you know, Nastir is like, you know, oh, we both want world domination, and I was like, well, is that really what Magneto wants? Like, and they don't really like right. I don't think they take a whole lot of time to sort of like say like that's not really his character like I mean I know he's like kind of all over the place and he's just like a Russian submarine yeah. and killed a bunch of dudes and it seems like world domination is like just around the corner for kind of what he's shooting for at this particular phase of his of, of his you know I guess maybe like almost like rehabilitation here but you know it, it is a weird sort of like take and and you wonder when simonson writes that why we don't get a little more rebuttal because i don't think he i don't think he goes back and i don't think he says that that's not yeah i don't think he kind of it's still it, it, you see him narrow his eyes and you mm-hmm. don't get his yeah. response and instead it cuts to the new mutant seeing it happen right and then he's gone for the issue <laughs> yeah like i say you could just about take that scene out yeah yeah you really could I do really like the way Simonson draws the helmet of Magneto. He looks cool, which is the eyes and the helmet. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the yeah yeah it, it's it was a good time for for that sort of classic look. Yeah, I guess so. Here's my issue with the New Mutants, and and maybe why I struggled to get into them a little bit. It's a little bit of the 
dark side Thanos mongol thing where you've got a copy of a copy of a copy or whatever. Mm. If New Teen Titans is DC's answer to Uncanny X-Men, New Mutants feels like Marvel's answer to New Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not wrong, and I've always kind of felt that way too. But with, with almost too strong of a mission statement, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like <laughs> it, it's almost it's almost so squarely stuck in the mold of like, okay, this is the school, these are the students, this is the next group of X Men, that the adventures they have can only be sort of like like lo- lower tier X-Men stories. You know what I mean? Right. And again, you know, I, I, I have a, I, I might be considered someone who has a little bit of a dog in this fight considering who, you know, I, I work with sometimes, but I really feel like it's sometimes not until, you know, X-Force kind of starts, you know, showing up on the horizon or cable and that stuff starts that, that these characters really feel like they get a good, solid sort of, no, this is what makes them different from the X-Men. This is what makes them different, why you should like them, why you should sort of like, it's not that they don't have a voice, it's just that they don't have a strong voice, I don't think, that separates them. Until And, until and I think this event does a better job than some other storylines of giving them some real stakes. Yes, they're not doing... Like, Ilyana's connection to Limbo sure. gives them a connection to what's going on in the event sure. in a way that, that matters. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's true. That's Yeah. Well, they did always have different... I, I, I This is going to sound like I'm going back on, on what I was saying, but I... You know, you brought up the Demon Bear earlier, which I guess is probably maybe yeah. the most, you know, well-known sort of prior to this. You know, if you're going to, like, rank every New Mutant story, right? Like, it's right. probably, like, the number one new mutant story, I would say. It feels like everything's kind of, you know, it, 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 it looks different, it feels different, it, it kind of, you know, reads different, I think. And, and, and that sort of is the story which sort of makes, which sort of sets this sort of, like, supernatural tone to their stories. You know what I mean? In a way that the X-Men kind of found their way into Inferno through all this other stuff that's going on it does seem more natural somehow for the new mutants to find their way into the story because of Ileana. Yeah. I, I like what you said there, the, the supernatural aspect because between Ileana and Danny and, Moonstar and, and they've got a werewolf on the team, you know? Right, like, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so to, to their credit, this doesn't feel like it's not natural for them where sometimes when you watch Iceman fight demons, you're like, that's a weird, that's a little funny, you know? <laughs> like, right, like, right. I, I don't, I, I've always felt like this story had some great moments in it, but tonally it was just like, okay, where did these guys come from? Like, I know Sim this year is a funny pun and there's all kinds of some stuff going on. And there's all this, you know, there's all this like you know, supernatural stuff going on, but it doesn't feel out of character for the new mutants to deal with it in a way that sometimes I've read this story and felt like it felt out of character for the X-Men to be dealing with this. Yeah. You know, we really need a werewolf on our team. <laughs> Every team should have hey, a werewolf. Hey, Trey. Trey, let, let's take a walk across the moors. Come on. <laughs> yeah, No, I've seen that movie. I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> so we should probably... Go ahead and take another quick break, I think. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I, I, I feel like we may have almost beat this New Mutants double-size issue to death with its with itself. So let's go ahead and take a quick break, and we are going to come back with a double dose of Excalibur, number six and seven, 
right after these messages. Hey kids, comics! It was the dawn of a new age of comic book podcasting. Hey Kids Comics was a dream given form. A place where two generations of comic book fans could work out their differences, peaceably. It was a humorous place where nothing was sacrosanct and it was our last, best hope for joy. But all things end. But from endings can come new beginnings. This is the return of a comic book podcast. The year is 2023. The name of the show is Hey Kids Comics. Michael and Andrew are back with an all-new look at old comics and all old looks at new comics. You can go home again. Hey Kids Comics, monthly from Two True Freaks and wherever you get your comics-related podcasts. Hey Kids Comics! I'm Freddy Krueger, your worst nightmare come alive, and now I'm on your telephone. Dial this number now and I'll tell you Freddy's favorite bedtime stories. Gruesome tales of murder and mayhem, frightful heartstoppers of pain and gore. So dial this number now if you dare, and prepare for a scare. Freddy Krueger has a special message just for you. $2 for the first minute, 35 cents each additional minute. Welcome back to Believers to our look at Excalibur number six. Writer on this one is Chris Claremont. Penciler is Alan Davis. Inker is Paul Neary. I believe his last names. Paul, Paul. Neary. Color is Glenis Oliver. And letter is Tom Orchestrowski. I only know that because I know their names. <laughs> I've, re- I've reviewed enough of these books that I know Horshaw. I can't say his name apparently uh, right today. And the editor can. And the editor is Terry Cavan. Yeah. Oh, and the boss is Tom DeFalco. Not as I was like <laughs> believe Bruce Springsteen. First off, let's talk about that cover because that is a fantastic. Oh, uh, with cover with by all the close-ups. Well, you've. You've got these close-ups of the Excalibur team, all zombified, demonized, and ooh, that's a creepy cover. It is very creepy. And it really, really works. I will say right out, we're in some for some spectacular art here, guys. So, our issue begins. By the way, this one's called Goblin Knight. Our issue begins at the Excalibur Lighthouse where Rachel Summers is plagued by bad dreams of her mother, Madeline Pryor, in a skimpy demon stripper outfit. And not a demon, a green demon that she'll soon learn is Nostir, and her little brother, Nathan Summers. She erupts from a bad dream and literally erupts through the top of the Excalibur lighthouse, spreading the bird of the phoenix behind her in a gorgeous double page by Alan Davis and as she does show she she does wake up the other members of Excalibur as you do when you burst through a floor and she ceiling. literally bursts uh, through the, the bed that Captain Britain and Megan are sleeping in there's no symbolism there <laughs> no, none whatsoever I might have been sleeping uh, the rest of Excalibur go to <laughs> the rest of Excalibur go in to investigate what's going on only to find that Kitty Pride's clothes have been transformed into that of a baby 
because apparently Rachel Summers has found out that there is something wrong with her little brother, Nathan <coughs> Summers. And, and she has gone off to New York to save him. The rest of Excalibur decide that they better follow in order to help. We then move to London, where a CID Scotland Yard commander, DAI Thomas, meets Brigadier Alison Stewart and her brother, Dr. Alistair Stewart, both members of the Weird Happenings Organization, acronymed as WHO, who are investigating the sudden appearance of a Nazi steam train in a London train station. Also aboard, you have Nazi equivalents of Dr. Maura McTaggart and Callisto. But more on that in another issue. We return to Rachel Summers, who is blazing her way across the Atlantic in record time, where she arrives in New York at Empire State Building to find what she first thinks is her mother, but actually turns out to be the Goblin Queen, Madeline Pryor. The Goblin Queen blasts Rachel into the side of the building, where she is absorbed by a gooey wall of demon people who say that you'll embrace it just as we embrace you. Meanwhile, the rest of Excalibur make their way across the Atlantic a bit slower than Rachel did. They do have to make a potty stop on a fishing trawler so Kitty can use the facilities, although I'm not sure she'd want to use those facilities because they look, would look really nasty. Meanwhile, the crew is getting an eye full of Megan, and Megan seems to be appreciating it due to her empathic chameleon powers. Rachel breaks free of the wall in of the Empire State Building only to crash through a bride and groom store and off being offered a hand off panel by Mysterious Hand. More on that later. A Nightcrawler and Megan talk about Megan's encounter with the crew. And whilst they do so, Megan does take on the appearance of a female version of Nightcrawler. Forwarding that whole subplot, we'll talk a little more about that later, before they are interrupted by the super, super tall, bought those pills off the internet Empire State Building. We then, Megan then kind of absorbs the demon vibes that are going on here and throws Nightcrawler to the demons below. That is before she meets up with Nastir and accepts his power to become the Goblin Princess. And she sticks the demons on Nightcrawler who says despite looking like him, them will never become one of them. He takes a swan dive off the side of the Empire State Building basically breaking his fall by like bouncing off of demons finally going through a flagpole and then thudding on the street below. He's in pretty bad shape but not worse than, than Rachel who he sees has been turned into a dummy in the bridal store window. Meanwhile Kitty saves some Kitty the rest of Excalibur saves some civilians before they themselves run into the Goblin Princess and Brian Braddock, Captain Britain, is dragged into a nearby movie theater by living strips of film. Kitty decides only an idiot goes in through the front, so decides to phase through the side of the theater. When she does so, she finds that she is actually in a Rambo movie. Which one is it with the Afghans, Trey? That's Rambo 3. Rambo 3. Made with the helpful with the helpful help of our friends the Mujahideen. Yep, yep. <laughs> And except he also has like I think it might be one of the mo- he also has like a I was about to say like a Conan the Barbarian sword but it almost looks like Thundercats 
And he also has a Freddy yeah. claw. He's got a Freddy Krueger claw. He's got a chainsaw on the gun as well. Yeah. Because she has been absorbed into the movies that the, mo- the movie theater was playing. And that is... And it says, Next Goblin Dawn. I don't know about you guys, but I thought this issue was pretty um, dang great. <laughs> yeah, well, what do you think of Excalibur, Chad? <laughs> I actually really like Excalibur. I, I think it is is a it is it is Claremont having so much fun, but all of his sort of like all of his tropes. It's like it's like the ultimate Claremont book. I mean, some might say that X Men's like the ultimate Claire, Claremont book, but you know, like and, and, and it is obviously Claremont is is the X Men guy, but like you know, he he's he's certainly the the probably best X-Men writer or greatest X-Men writer of all time. I think we would all probably have a difficult time not arguing that on some level. But this is the book yeah. I think that is the most Claremont. It's this weird sort of like Anglophile sort of like, you know, celebration of international comics and superheroing and that kind of stuff. And 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 there's a lot of stuff. Do we it, I mean, okay, let me ask you guys this. This is not my show, so I don't want to direct this show, right? <laughs> do, do do we want to talk about the second issue and, and then kind of talk about both of them? I mean, do you think that's fair, or do we go do we go back to – how do we do that? I think that's fair, James. Yeah, it, it, yeah, if you want to do the summary, because they they flow together pretty seamlessly. They really do, because it's hard to talk about well, one without talking flow. about the other in just a second. Yeah, they flow together so well. Our next issue is Excalibur number seven. Same team as last time. We have a gorgeous cover here of a wedding between the mannequin Rachel Summers in her her bridal outfit and this little demon that for a long time I thought was Nightcrawler. But if you look at the double page spread, you see that Nightcrawler and the rest of Excalibur are trying to save her. Well, Megan is. And Megan has Brian Braddock in some bondage gear. And, you know... I think a secret part of him always wanted this. Uh, Talk about about Claremont, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you're going to talk about Claremont tropes. Again, the most Claremont book. (laughs) Clearly, Claremont has a favorite episode of the 60s TV show, The Avengers. (laughs) Yes, definitely a favorite episode of The Avengers. Oh, my God. (laughs) We are interested to the demon Crotus. Crotus has stolen Nastir's spell book, and he is sneaking away from the Empire State Building, sensing this whole Inferno thing might be coming to an end. But when he does so, he immediately comes upon the bridal shop in which Rachel Summers has been turned into a mannequin. Recognizing her as the embodiment of the Phoenix, he decides he's going to make her his. He takes her to a nearby chapel and invite some other demons because they're going to have themselves a wedding. Oh my god, Trey, it's our wedding episode! (laughs) (laughs) No. We then go back to the movie theater where more unsuspecting New Yorkers are being sucked into the film. And we find out the film is Brian Braddock is Fast Buck. Kenny Braddock's victim in Fast Buck in Teen Bimbo War Gore Shocker 23. Which, you know, I would watch Joe Bob host that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, they get sucked into the film as well. And and in the film, they're being forced to carry out the tropes of the role. 
Kitty plays the female final girl heroine to Brian Braddock playing the Rambo slash Freddy Krueger mix here. Kitty seems to get the better of Brian before Brian shifts again to another horror icon, Jason Voorhees. And by the way, this is a cosplay I would love <laughs> to see. Somebody doing this version of Jason Braddock. <laughs> Although Jason Braddock's a different person, actually. Never mind. But Kitty finds that she herself has been transformed to a cheerleader. Yuck. And we then shift to the streets of New York, where the unconscious Nightcrawler is eaten up by a sentient trash truck. He is encounters the other New Yorkers already inside the trash truck, who mistaken him for a demon and start to pound on him. But the impromptu hate crime gives the garbage truck a stomach ache, and he spits the New Yorkers and Nightcrawler out. Meanwhile, Kitty is going along the halls of what appears to be Xavier High many years before we got <laughs> X-Men Evolution. And although it, it, in, it looks, it actually kind of looks like the mausoleum from Phantasm Train. I think by design. Uh, more so than a high school. Because lockers. all of the names yeah. on the lockers are people that she thinks are dead. Yeah. Well, except, yeah. no, I take that back. Scott uh, Summers is on there. She doesn't think he's dead. No, she she, she thinks Scott Summers is, is she? dead. No, wait, sure, you're right. They're all student. No, you're right. Never mind. He's X Factor, not X Men. My bad. Bad James. Professor Xavier, but, yeah, dead Dean. She finds Doug Ramsey in a locker. Yep. And then she finds the what Brian has transformed into the custodian. He's gone full Freddy Krueger on this one, which is a shame. I liked his Jason Voorhees look. He slashes her with the Freddy Krueger glove and starts chasing her through the school. Meanwhile, Nightcrawler is reflecting on the madness around him and meets a very friendly gargoyle. Nightcrawler then manages to save a local New Yorker from the attack of the mannequins. Apparently, the mannequins need bodies for us. Flesh is life. And they take refuge in one of your old hangouts, Trey, Forbidden Planet. Yep, yep. And, of course, the all the, the you know the geeky merchandise in Forbidden Planet has become real, which is a good thing because the mannequins are making like entons breaking down the the door the store windows and are blasted to pieces. Unfortunately, they are able to just like meld back together. Really really creepy stuff. Speaking of creepy stuff, creepy stuff back in the horror film, Kitty bursts into the gymnasium to find all the X-Men hanging from the ceiling like something out of a pinhead movie. And Kitty's like, you know what? I'm not afraid of you. And Goblin Princess is like, okay, fine. Let's try something else. And it turns into an old-fashioned Hollywood musical. God, I love this issue. <laughs> and where Brian is literally dancing Kitty to death. Meanwhile, if back at Forbidden Planet, the, the, the geeks are still raging away at the mannequins with the toys come to life. And when Nightcrawler finds one of the mannequins wearing a very familiar outfit, Phoenix's spiky 80s suit. <laughs> Jesus Christ, there's time off. And <laughs> meanwhile, Kitty realizes that though she is going strong, Brian seems to be tiring. That's when Goblin Princess decides to bring an end to Sherrod. Speaking of Sherrod, back at the wedding of Rachel Summers to the demon, she starts to get drained of energy. And then 
in the throne room of some castle somewhere, Kitty arrives in the armor of the Dark Child, wielding the Soul Sword. The Goblin Princess tries to transform Kitty into a demon, but Megan begins to weaken, and Kitty is able at the last minute to throw the Soul Sword through Megan, breaking the spell just at the right minute, too. As at the same time, Nightcrawler and his gargoyle friend are throwing the spellbook of Kratos into the Phoenix Fire, which seems to free the Phoenix as the Phoenix explodes over New York City. Again, great visuals from Alec Davis here. And unfortunately, this does kill Nightcrawler's gargoyle friend. And Kitty realizes that, hey, if I have the Soul Sword, what's happened to Ileana? Meanwhile, the lonely Kratos wanders the city of New York, wondering if he maybe can get back into his master's good graces. So, Chad, what did you want to say about Excalibur number seven? <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, like, the influences and stuff like that. That That's all. I mean, like, I think, I personally think that Alan Davis and Chris Claremont together are, are just a really amazing pair. I think that they do some of the best X-Men work with, with, with Davis. But, uh, but I really feel like these two work together amazingly in Excalibur. Specifically, though, like as a big Doctor Who fan, you, you touched on it a little bit with the Autons earlier, James. But I mean, you know, Day Thomas and and the the you know the Stuarts. Obviously, I think they're supposed to be the Brigadiers, you know, children, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously they work for the what is it the uh, what's weird what's happenings the organization? Weird happenings organization, you know. So, I mean, like, all that's very Doctor Who and very Unit and all that stuff, which I've always really enjoyed about those books as well. I'm a big fan of the Alan yeah. Moore, Alan Davis, Captain Britons, and the Jamie Delano, Alan Davis, Captain Britons. So, you know, whenever... So, so carrying that over to these issues, and really, like, the first couple of years of Excalibur are just, like, really strong comics. And, and one of the reasons I thought it was good to go yeah. into the next issue is because... Excalibur works like that. It's so flawless and seamless when from issue to issue to issue for about the first 8 to 12, I believe. They really, really work great like that. And uh, yeah, I, I just love it. I think it's a great book. I think it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, never never been never been super disappointed by, uh, by Excalibur. Yeah, I have in my notes that Claremont watched too much Doctor Who uh-huh. on PBS back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I I like these books. I especially love the art. I think Alan Davis is just doing fantastic work throughout and making what could be some very difficult to follow sequences very clear and clean and, and understandable. Um, mm-hmm. That said, mm-hmm. and, and it's not even fair to really criticize it for this because it's Claremont, yeah. but it can get awful work. There's panels here with, like, ten speech bubbles. Yeah. I, I do like the lettering on this book. I've always loved the lettering on this book. Tom, Tom to its credit, to its credit, I don't get lost in it. It's easy yeah, to it's, follow. It's, it's what... very easy to follow. <laughs> yeah. He's a great letterer, and I, I always, I've often wondered what Claremont's scripts look like for this, because, you know, whether how, how much is he breaking these, you know, balloons out and these speech balloons out into different, like, you know... You know, because it, it 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 feels like every thought has its own balloon, or every sentence almost has its own balloon. Yeah. You know? Which which is a lot. I mean, I I I whether intentionally or just how I've sort of like 
was 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 sort of like unconsciously taught to do. I sort of try to do that too, but but it's a really really interesting way, and I feel like here it works really really well in this book. You know, Excalibur has always tried to put its own spin on things when it dips into the X Men crossover, and and this is I think the first time it's had to do it, and so it's kind yeah, of yeah because this book is hasn't been around much. Young, yeah, it's a young book, so you know. Bravo for not just dodging the crossover in the way it does later on when you get to things like, you know, I'm trying to think of what, what precedes Extinction Agenda, but Extinction Agenda and, you know, Executioner Song and all those big, big, like, you know, summer blockbuster X-Men crossovers, which I guess this is after Fall of the Mutants, right? I believe yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, because Fall of the Mutants is like the first big X crossover, if I remember correctly. And then this is like the next one or the, maybe the, I don't remember if it's the third one or not, but whatever the case may be, this is obviously the first time that like Excalibur's had a time to do it. And, and after this, Excalibur doesn't really dip its foot back in until I think something like the Phalanx Covenant or something like that comes along many, many years later or, or Age of Apocalypse or I can't remember the order of these things. But like, so it is a situation where maybe somebody at the helm looks at it and says like, Eh, you know, maybe Ed Keller, Ed Keller doesn't really work well in these crossovers, you know? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> but, it know, is I, kind I, of like... Um, it is kind of like we're part of the event, but we're going to do our own version of it, right? So yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have the Goblin Princess, and, and we'll right. it's sort of like the sort of microcosm of the event just featuring the Excalibur characters. Yeah, and, and I think another thing, too, is like, you know... It, similar similar to the way that New Mutants seems like it fits right into it because of all the stuff that we talked about earlier that having that kind of having that like supernatural angle already kind of teed up from previous stories that don't really have anything to do with Inferno this book kind of has that too right obviously you know it, it's interesting that they lead into the familial connection between Rachel and and, and Nathan and and not not directly it's so weird that, because it is so weird because it's like I don't know that she thinks I mean she's she's there's issues where she clearly acknowledges that he's kind of like her brother which is totally fine but you know it's that weird thing where like I always I've always had that weird thing where it's like I mean does Rachel really think of Jean as her mom does she really think of Cable as her brother does she really think of these things and you know she, well, and, she and does. even if she thinks of even if she thinks of Jean as her mom she wouldn't think of Madeline as her mom well and also what about the connection to the Phoenix? Because Madeline has so much of, the, like, she's got that little sliver of the Phoenix in her. You know what I mean? And so Rachel's got this, like, yeah, extra-dimensional Felix, or Phoenix. <laughs> you don't know about extra-dimensional Felix, guys. No, extra-dimensional <laughs> Phoenix. <laughs> that's, that's another character that Claremont shows up later next calendar. No, I, I, feel, I feel like I feel like there's there's that little sliver of, of connection there too. But the stuff that does work best is Nightcrawler, who never fails to remind you that he looks different, you know, but Nightcrawler showing up and being like, oh, hey, demons, I'm not like you. And then, you know, <laughs> obviously, you know, you know, Brian's, Brian's whole thing is magic, you know? So, so yeah, I, I feel like there are connections that might have been missed, but I feel like the issue does its best to sort of like get itself into Inferno and get out pretty quickly. Oh yeah, two, and I I yeah. do I I love the the whole sucked into the movies sequence. That's just that's just Claremont and Davis having really fun. good. 
Mm-hmm. And that seems to be a lot of what these issues are. Like, just the two of them having a lot of fun with the stuff they love. And I love that in comics. When the creators are able to do that. By the way, Chad, kind of piggybacking on what you talked about, I did find some Chris Claremont scripts for Excalibur. Oh, um, cool. I'll take a look at Put those in the chat. <laughs> it is a... It is a very weird scripting format. Like it's just it's it's literally just blocks of text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it, it's funny though that you get there's there's what five, six, maybe seven, no, five or six, I think it's five pages that are devoted to the 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 Nazi steam train, the alt universe Nazi steam train that shows up underneath, you know, London. And then nothing about it in the second issue. <laughs> Right. And, and so that that was said I, 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 went, I actually went back and read from Excalibur 1 just to get up to speed because I hadn't looked at any of that stuff in a long time that the train stuff is set up in the previous issue right yeah that there's a scene with regular continuity Moira and Callisto on the train and, and sort of flipping out or whatever and then it sort of morphs into that yeah 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 huh. yeah and it's setting up stuff that'll happen after Inferno. Mm-hmm. Right. And I gotta say, I read this stuff as a as a I would say a kid. Now it was my late teens, but I, I was a kid. Let's be honest here. And I remember really liking Excalibur, especially around this time where they go to New York. It's just after this that like we get that Clark Kent cameo. That's not really uh-huh. Clark Kent, but it's definitely Clark Kent in, in the street. Lo- Clark Kent and Lois Lane. Yep. In the streets of New York. However. I will point out something I thought was, you know, charming and romantic, Nightcrawler's crush on Megan. It's a little weird. Comes across as really creepy as an adult. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Starting from like, issue one, like, uh, yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. And you're, t- t- Kurt, you're doing the nice guy thing. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'm going to pretend to be her friend, this nice guy, this guy she confided, but really, I, I want her, and I, you know, I, I want to take her away from her boyfriend that she's in a committed relationship with. and Like, oh, dude, no. And he's really passive-aggressive toward Brian. Yeah. In, in his, in uh, the, yeah, he's white-knighting all in the In the character's place. defense, which I, which I think that, like, which I think that, y- you know, is, 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 some, is in retrospect not as defensible, maybe, as, as it was at the time. But, you know, Kurt is a, is a very passionate character. Kurt is a very, like, he is a very, you know, strong-willed and, you know, kind of a self-made, you know, man in a way. And he's religious and all these other things. And, like, you know, Megan, Megan doesn't quite, you know, she didn't brush off his advances. And he never quite, he's never quite overt about it. You know what I mean? But, you know, she does, she does tend to sort of give him a glimmer of hope every once in a while. Just like this, this issue where she talks about, like, where she does kind of turn into the, the, the female version of, of Nightcrawler, you know what I mean? So it's like, it, I don't feel like it's as bad as, as as maybe it comes across now. I don't necessarily know that we had a term for we've had a term for it in like 89. It just feels like they're trying to build a, they're clumsily trying to build this sort of like, you know, triangle between this, this love triangle between the three of them. And, you know, now it just kind of comes off with Kurt looking pretty, you know, I don't know, disingenuous about it. But I don't think he, I don't it's, think it's he, a, I don't, 
And, and also, I mean, it, it's a little bit John Hughes teen movie kind of drama, you know, mm-hmm. like, like mm-hmm. Pretty in Pink, some kind of wonder, like, like teen movie kind of triangle. Where... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a little ducky, right? Like I think if you're talking yeah. about, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I think you're right. And you know, and, and Brian is a Brian is a, you know, an oaf. You know what I mean? He's a goofball. He, he's 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 my favorite character in Excalibur. But 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 he's he's you know, he looks like he would be the leader. But in many ways, everybody kind of knows that like Kurt's the leader or Kitty Bright's the leader. You know. Well, all, um, all through these two issues, Kurt's giving orders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're a little shocked by it. Remember, like, yeah. when Kurt says something, they're like, what are you doing? You're giving orders now? And it's like, but yeah, he's <laughs> clearly, like, the de facto leader in these issues. And, and let's think about who is the target audience for this issue. Like, it's people in their teens. It's, you know, young men who are in their early 20s. They're not really thinking, okay, this is going to be read by... Some, some people in near their 40s in or near their 40s in committed relationships stable relationships who can look at this and be like you know, oh that's my a, god that's a good point though James like I've always sort of wondered about this book like and I was reading comics I wasn't like reading you know every book obviously because I was on a 10 year old's allowance you know so I only picked you know, the my, my favorites and Excalibur was something that I came to much later, but I've always wondered sort of who is the target audience for Excalibur, <laughs> other than Chris Claremont and Alan Davis. I mean, I love the book and I think it's great, but you read it and you're like, okay, this is great, but like, it doesn't feel like a Marvel comic of the time. So, so who is? You know, is Marvel yeah. just like, hey, we can sell anything to anybody. Excalibur's got this. If there's an X art. on it, yeah, yeah. But it, but again, why is that? The, there had to be the temptation to do this as Excalibur, you know? That, right, you right. Know, but it doesn't. It clearly separates itself from the X Men in the most subtle way by making it not quite an X book, but an X adjacent book that kind of becomes a Marvel Universe book that <laughs> kind of doesn't. It's it's such an interesting book. I've always really just been fast. I mean, I own the whole run. I own everything, and and I've always and I and, and a couple of years ago, I read it from start to finish, and uh, it's just a it's a great book. But man, it's an odd book. Yeah, they kind of become the de facto British super team. Yeah. eventually, and I, I like that a lot. And and you know, young me, I mean, I did eat this up with a spoon, and at that point, I had no idea. Right. Well, who I think that's a thing. I think that's the thing is like so so much of this stuff does spill out of like you know the daredevils and and those those british weeklies excalibur is the book that sort of like you know closes the gap between you know marvel north america and like what what effectively becomes marvel uk you know and so maybe the success of excalibur is just sort of testing the water if we can make a book that's not set in manhattan work you know what what else can we do? You know, maybe that's it. I don't know. I, I haven't. I, as much as I've read of Excalibur, I haven't really sat down and done like a. You know, maybe there's like an oral history out there somewhere with Terry Cavanaugh just explaining sort of what the <laughs> you know the impetus behind the book was. But I'm sure it is. I just I just I've always been fascinated by it, but maybe not fascinated enough to go find out. I always thought, especially this particular Captain Britain design, not so much the original with the Lionheart logo and everything, but the the 
the Union no. Jack mask, and he almost looks like the Marvel version of a 2000 AD character. Oh yeah, no, I think I think it's a hundred percent on on yeah, spot on. But he does change the the costume. I think maybe even next issue changes. It goes <laughs> from being that costume to being like the weird streamlined costume. Or maybe it's no. It looks like it's around like number eleven or twelve where the costume changes, where it has the diamonds it, on the shoulders and the the helmet right. loses the the Union Jack, and it's a subtle change that if you don't like, if you're not reading the book, you're like, oh wow, what's going on? I think it's like number nine actually, but uh, but yeah, I, I I do not like the second Captain Britain or the the third Captain Britain costume. I I, I like it when it's a flag. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, Alan Davis is the artist when I close my eyes and think about comics pages and think about the way they look. Like, in my head, when I am working on a comics page, my, my, my mind's eye draws like Alan Davis. Mine's George Perez. Alan Davis is just such a clean, yeah. expressive artist. And, and, and just, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, my, my, my favorite sort of wheelhouse artists are like the, the, the Alan Davises, the Carlos Pachecos, the, the Stuart Eminens and those guys. He kind of hits just the right amount of detail without making mm-hmm. a panel feel cluttered. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important thing in a Claremont book, where there's also going to be so much text on the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think he gets Claremont in a way that not every artist that's ever worked with Claremont, you know, gets him. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just two very good <laughs> issues of a comic. I'm not sure if it's good, a good. But like you know, I say, it sort of does its own or, version of the um, event in microcosm, like with, with the mm, Goblin yeah. Princess standing in for Madeline Pryor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's like Claremont in the middle of the middle of the event, being like, "I can do this crossover that I'm already working on better and shorter." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but speaking of being shorter, we should probably move on to our next comic. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll be right back with I know, uh, Daredevil right? number 265. With Daredevil number 265, right after these messages. Hello and welcome to the Shameless Picture Show. I am your host, Michael Byers, and with me, as always, is fellow writer and filmmaker, Nick Richards. So, Nick, what is a Shameless have you ever been at a party or hanging with friends and somebody brings up a beloved film that you have not seen? Oh yeah, all the time. It's, to- it's I'm always like, oh, totally, I've, I've totally seen that. I love that part where the thing happens and all the stuff that you're talking about is fantastic. <laughs> exactly. So all those films, the classics that you should have seen but never got around to, you write them down, that's your shame list. So what we do is on each episode, we pick a movie from one of our shame lists. We both watch it, well, at least we try to, and we discuss <laughs> the film as a fresh viewer. Well, one of us is usually a fresh viewer. The other may have already seen it. I guess making them a stale viewer. <laughs> yes, but that's not always the case. Wordplay! <laughs> there is always a little bit of shame list crossover. Uh, we should turn our shame list into like a Venn diagram and see where the crossover is. I completely agree. I think that would work out well. <laughs> so we typically release one of these deep dive episodes a month, and we try to release a second monthly episode that is sometimes another deep dive, and sometimes it's more of a topical episode. So find us on most major podcast platforms, including Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and Libsyn. And as we say on the shame list, if you don't like that, I've got two words for you. Watch Watch movies. movies. You really 
think a cop did this? Why not? Why did Jack keep killing people? He'll kill again. He enjoys killing. When the most terrifying man in the city carries a badge, I'm gonna read you your rights. You have the right to remain silent. I know who committed these murders. Forever. He's back. Only now he kills innocent people. Maniac Cop Reddit R. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Chad's going to take our next issue, which is Daredevil number 265. You want me to run down the credits real quick? Yeah, if you want to, that's fine. All right, I can yeah. do it. I got it here if you want to. Oh, go for um, it. Take, take. This, issue is, uh, this issue is called We Again Beheld the Stars. It is written by the amazing Anna Shinty, art by, pencil art by John Amita Jr., inks by Al Williamson, colors, our letters by Joe Rosen, colors by Max Scheele. Edited by Ralph Macchio and, of course, our Lord and Savior, Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief at the time, the amazing Tommy D. <laughs> Tommy D. No, I love Tom DeFalco. So, yeah, this is this is the third, I believe, of three Inferno tie-ins across four issues of Daredevil because it does this weird thing where I think it's like 262, 263 are tie-in issues, and then 264 is a weird fill-in issue with Steve Ditko art that has nothing to do with Inferno. And then 265 pops back in, and it's like, oh, hey, Inferno. And so <laughs> it's it's really good. But it's also really weird because 260, 263, I believe, ends with like Daredevil like just out of the hospital, which, which is why when we first see him in this issue, he's all bandaged up. But anyway, this issue starts with a dentist, full, full, full you know, action already in, in place with a dentist at a dentist office being attacked by his equipment. And so he's being, you know, sort of sort of little shop of horror, Steve Martin style. He's in a chair and the, the, the machine's just sort of having its way with him and, and messing him up. And then he has this awful moment and sort of walks out into his waiting room where he's now been sort of had, had you know, arms and, you know, different, different, you know, pieces of the machinery sort of affixed to him now. And he's just sort of this weird, I don't even want to say cyborg thing because he kind of evolves as the story goes on, but he's definitely not a human anymore. And he comes out looking terrible and everybody's just kind of sitting in the, the waiting room, sees him and goes like, Hey, what's up, man? Yeah. And he kind of has this conversation with everybody. And it's, and it's this weird story where obviously the, the rest of the story sort of plays out this way and we'll kind of touch on some ports in a minute but like you know this is the street level Manhattan in the middle of Inferno this is what's happening while the X-Men are fighting on top of Empire you know the Empire State Building so so the dentist who we later on will will find out becomes Officer Drillbit and here's why approaches two police officers who in the middle of Inferno are both just having a giant sandwich and a, and, a, and drinking a Coke and uh, Officer Drillbit comes up and then eventually attacks both of the officers, presumably taking one of the officers' uh, whole whole uh, uniform, while the other one just kind of sits there and watches. Anyway, meanwhile, New York is just covered with lots of things sort of coming to life. Ca- taxi cabs are coming to life, eating people. You know, different different characters have been turned into weird spotted mutant demon things. There's a there's a trucker with his friend who is just like, you know, just fogging up the street with you know exhaust from his uh, from his big rig and then suddenly the the exhaust pipe on the big rig you know go gets bent and uh, comes out and he sees daredevil standing on top of his big rig and you know he, he tries to start something with daredevil and daredevil's just not having it he just does not say a thing and daredevil intimidates the guy and he gives up basically and then we kind of cut into the city and we see that daredevil is saving lives 
something we don't see the X-Men or the New Mutants or Excalibur <laughs> any of those issues. But Daredevil's out here saving lives and we see these these demons and these creatures like rising up and Daredevil is just like assaulting them, like taking their prisoners, just being as brutal as he can be, not saying a word, covered in bandages from things that happened to him in previous issues. He gut punches the shit out of a mailbox. And if there are if there are show notes, I, I'd like a, I'd like a, a, a link to that. But he really just punches that mailbox. And these kids, these background characters in the issues, you know, one of one of whom is a, a character that we've really come to like love in this series, Butch, and his friend Darla, who has been sort of possessed by 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 the spirit of the Inferno. And Butch is just trying his best to sort of not get get caught up in it. And he is like you know, basically having this conversation with Darla throughout the issue that like something's wrong with Daredevil. Like, he's not usually this violent. He's not usually this whacked out. And Darla's like, I love it. I love it. I just want to. <laughs> I just want to see him punch everything. I want to kill this this mailbox, and I want to see him kill this like ice cream truck. And so anyway, like you know, you see Daredevil just kind of go on this like rampage, and Darla and Butcher sort of following him through the city as he like wraps a demon around a light pole. Then you get this poor schmo who's like in this issue who like is trying his best to get some sleep, but Inferno's happening outside of his window, and he's like, "That's it, I'm done, I'm leaving New York." <laughs> Meanwhile, you have Doctor Drillbit, yet to be named Doctor Drillbit, who's just terrorizing the city and getting more and more grotesque. Now he wears a cop's hat, but his face is just, you know, turning into this amazing John Romita Jr. like face that's like 99% teeth. And he's just just rampaging through the city. He eats a Walkman. We see the guy who's trying to leave the town, still trying to leave the town. And yet, and, and this is this callback to sort of what we talked about in New Mutants earlier. The street jumps up and just rips his tire off of his car, basically. He's just nonplussed by the whole thing. He's like, yep, that's what happens in Manhattan. Gridlock. Just let me find a taxi cab. Gets in a taxi cab with a, with a demon. No problem. Normal. He just gets the taxi cab, asks to be taken out of New York. Daredevil's still making his way through the city, trying to save people as much as he can, still hasn't uttered a single word, covered in bandages, Book and Darla, Butch and Darla are like, what the heck is going on? Daredevil massacres a couple of demons in an alleyway. Meanwhile, a lady and her husband are walking by the massacre in the street and, and having a conversation about what movie they've rented. She's rented Lady and the Tramp, just for the, just for the audience. <laughs> And uh, we see the New Yorker guy who's still trying to get into the city. He actually sort of ultimately cross paths, across his paths with uh, Dr. Drillbit here, I'm sorry, Officer Drillbit, who is just the worst. Like, he's just, his legs are gone. Now they've turned into, like, little wheels. His face has become this just awful thing with steam rolling out of its ears. His torso is cybernetic. He's wearing his, uh, you know, dental, like, doctor's coat, but he's also got a cop's uniform underneath, so... You know, I, I, the implication, I think, is that maybe he's merged with the cop and he's also the dentist and he's also this machine. He's just the the worst thing that you could possibly imagine, you know, and, he, and he's just going around tying people up and cutting them with his, like, you know, pick. He's just, you know, it, it's not pretty. But, you know, there, there's there's this also, and we can talk about this in a minute. I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing the issue now. I'm not, like, going into to, to subtext, but obviously he's, like, the worst of the worst of sort of what New York is. You know what I mean? And, 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 and it's sort of like elevated through him. And, and ultimately he and Daredevil have this face off with Daredevil sort of like take, taking a stand against him. And it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. Daredevil like just tears this guy apart. When I say tears this guy apart, I mean literally tears him apart. He knocks him down and rips off his pick, dental pick arm and literally flails the guy with it. Just beats the guy or beats, you know, the guy to death with it. Savage. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, I, I hate to say it's awesome. It's bad. <laughs> it's horrific. It's it's one of the most 
painful things that you know a Daredevil fan like me can see, but you can't help you can't help but hear it as he beats the guy. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, Daredevil's like tearing this guy up. He and meanwhile, Butch and Darla are watching, and Butch is just heartbroken because this is Daredevil. This is his hero, and you know, Butch's Butch's. Uh, kind of inserts himself in the middle of the whole thing and sort of snaps Daredevil out of this out of this moment. Now, and and Darla is like, oh wow, you know, like he's still he's still you know doing his thing, but you know he he's not going to change, Butch. And then in the middle of it all, with New York being trashed, us having seen some of the worst aspects of the city, you know, the first thing Daredevil does is he starts picking up trash after he's after he's whaling this guy, and uh, everybody else is like, oh wow, like Daredevil's picking up trash, maybe we should do the same thing. And so Daredevil sort of like, uh, you know, starts just by the simple act of, of kindness and you know, taking care of his city, everybody else kind of falls in line and does the same. We see our guy still trying to get out of Manhattan. He's just in this daze. He thinks he's getting out of the city, but he's not. He's just rented a 10 minute helicopter ride over the city. And we see the giant pentagram on the city. And he's just like, yeah, look at that. That's Manhattan. That's my city. And uh, we end with this. It's not really- so bad from up here. <laughs> not so bad from up here. <laughs> We see, we see this. We, we end on this this bar crawl that effectively summarizes the end of the end of Inferno, and we see Daredevil still hasn't said a single word this entire issue. There, there's a great moment where he's fighting a guy. I think he's fighting, you know, Officer Drillbit, and he won't talk to him. And he's like, "What's wrong with you? Are you deaf?" I thought that was hilarious. I'm sorry, not because he might be deaf, because you know, come on, it it's crazy. It really yeah, was. Exactly. But anyway, you know, he has a beer at the very end. He shares a beer with a, with a New Yorker whose last line is, after everything that we've seen, he says, yeah, man, to New York, greatest city in the world. And this is just an interesting, I mean, it's a great issue, right? I think that I love, I love Anna Shinty's Daredevil run. You know, obviously. Me too. <laughs> you know, there's, I have there's, been very vocal about that the last couple issues we've covered. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's the Miller run on the book, right? Miller and Klaus Janssen and, and, and Miller's amazing. I mean, like the Electra saga, you know, all, all that stuff is just like, you know, you know, top tier A plus comic storytelling. But for, for my money and for me at 10 and 11 years old, like this daredevil story and the Shinty's daredevil story from the first stuff to the very end, when it's the fight between bullseye and daredevil where bullseye is dressed like daredevil and daredevil's dressed like bullseye. And they're talking about how they hate each other, but they love each other at the same time. Amazing, amazing comics. And 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 Anne Nishinti tells a story like nobody else. And and her bet I think she just really, for whatever reason, she and Ramita Jr. and then later on Karen Dwyer and Lee Weeks on covers and that kind of they just click on this book in a way that I, I think really is amazing. And this is just an amazing issue as well. And and followed by what might be my favorite issue of, of her run, Beer with the Devil. We don't we don't have to talk about that one. It's not technically in front of us. But anyway, sorry, I could gush about Anishinti and John Romita Jr. Daredevil all, all day. We could we could do a podcast just on that run, honestly. And uh, Well and, and so just to sort of get us up to here, like you said, there are three issues that tie into Inferno directly. And so he has at a point of near death fought against a demonic vacuum cleaner. Who choked him out, man, broke his... I think that's yep. why he doesn't talk in this issue, because he's really just, just you know, it, yeah, it broke his larynx or whatever. He, he, I think it messed him up. He ends up in the hospital. Yeah. He drags... He hears reports about Inferno, drags himself out of the hospital, 
in that issue, he's not really wearing the the costume. He's just covered in bandages. He's bandaged, yeah, yeah. He fights a demon yeah, he train. Somewhere. He, yep. he fights a demon train in that one. Yep. Uh, probably gets further injured. And he also, <laughs> in the midst of all that, finds out that Karen has left and the clinic has been destroyed and all of that. Yep. And that that's sort of where we end up with this one, with this not exactly a silent interlude because everyone else is really talkative, but right. <laughs> but it's sort of that vibe. Have you guys have you guys covered? I don't know that you've done that. We talked about Follow the Mutants a minute ago. Is Follow the Mutants where the city is in the blackout, where there's a blackout in Manhattan? Um, is that the one remember. where he takes people down into the sewer and fights Sabretooth? Where, where where he's at the clinic and he stands up in the middle of the clinic with a torch and he says. The city's the city's a blackout, like, the, or the city's the, yeah the city's black. You can't see a thing. My name's Matt Murdock. I'm a blind man. Follow me. I have read that issue. I don't yeah. remember which event it's part, but I, I feel like Sabretooth's in that issue. Yeah, I feel like that. Might, I don't know if that's the Sabretooth issue because, but there there is one right around that issue. It's it, a remedial. It was the very big. It was the very beginning of Nishenti's run. Yeah, it's really early on, but you know he, he's he's obviously working pro bono and doing all this stuff and at the yeah, but that that whole thing about like, you know, my name's Matt Murdock. I'm a blind man. Follow me. It's just what that 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 whole scene has stuck with me my entire life as I've read these books. It's, great. it's just it's just amazing, and she gets to the heart of him in a way that that I really don't think anybody else does. And, you know, go ahead. And then. the art in this book is just gorgeous it's yeah I don't almost think Donovan Jr.'s ever been better expressionistic I guess mm-hmm. I would say it, it's mm-hmm. not going for realism I, I'm, I'm sure I've said this before but the closest point of comparison is Sienkiewicz in terms of the style and I would agree with you and I would agree with you Chad John Romita Jr. definitely does not get better after this. Oh, yeah. No, I think John Romita Jr. is like, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's top of my list, man. I love him. He's amazing. You know, my, 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 my favorite books as a kid were, you know, favorite superhero books as a kid, Marvel books, were, were like the books that I read the longest runs of were, you know, Hulk, Daredevil, and Thor. All of them yeah. very different looking books. But, but, but you know, Romita Jr. Was, was probably the first artist that I recognized. You know, I, I, and, and I could go to by name, you know, and and I just think he, I, I, James, I get it. I get how a lot of people don't, you know, I talk about the, I talk about him with, you know, people and comics readers and fans and stuff like that all the time. And it's like, you know, but, but he's just, he's just phenomenal, man. I, I, I but, I, but I get it, but I also don't get it. The thing that, the thing that I appreciate, the thing I appreciate is, the way that he kind of manages to reinvent himself as styles change. Mm-hmm. Like, like this doesn't look like his early stuff. Because early, he was kind of doing his dad. You know, yeah, he was doing very, his version of Romita Sr. Yeah, he's very clean. This is sort of where he comes into what I consider to be... And, and his X-Men work is very clean, too. Like, yeah. I, I feel like this is sort of where he comes into the John Romita Jr. that we sort of like... And he's, and he's sort of pulled back now. That's what I'm saying. The, the stuff that... Like, the Spider-Man work he's doing now... Right, feels right, right. very it looks the way comics look right now yeah yeah but I mean if you look at like if you look at like Cable Blood and Steel and stuff like that that he did you know with, with Fabian ECA's that two issue miniseries I mean that is just that is you know almost European sort of Mobius kind of you know influence stuff where he's just like going for it 
And and, and here I, you know, I don't know if, again, I, I know we're not talking about Anna Shinji, John Romita Jr., Daredevil, but like, you know, there's the two or three, it's mm-hmm. either two or three issues where he fights Ultron. And he, uh, yeah. and he, and he ends up running a pickup uh, truck. Avengers, Ultron. right? <laughs> yeah, the Axe of Vengeance yeah. story. I mean, like, this, I love this, Acts of Vengeance. <laughs> yeah, this, this thing's just—I mean, like, every issue of this book is is a beautiful testament to the character and what this character can achieve, and and, and it's why he's one of my favorite characters. Not because of the the the, not because of the Frank Miller stuff, but because of this stuff. And Ramita is having fun with the visuals of Inferno in a way that a lot of other artists on this event are not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It really suits him, I think. When I when I talked earlier about the the guy, Officer Drillbit, who's like 90% teeth. I mean, that's yeah. kind of how... There are, there are some panels here that look a little bit like that, that batter blood cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, what's, what's funny is that, you know, Trey, earlier today I texted you a picture of yeah. Claremont, Nishinti, and Simonson. And yep. I think it's interesting that, that these are the issues that, that we get, that, that I got for this particular episode. Because I know you guys are doing Spider-Man issues, and I know you guys have done you know, some, other, some other adjacent sort of like okay. Power Pack stuff like that. Power Pack, I think, still counts for kind of what I'm going for, too, though, because it's, got, because it's a Louis Simonson book. But, you know... Sure. But but the the you know Claremont has Simonson as his editor. Simonson goes from Claremont being Claremont's editor to Claremont's sort of partner in shepherding the the X books when when she takes over New Mutants and then ultimately sort of takes over X Factor, which we'll be talking about next, I think. And then you know if I remember correctly, I don't have my 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 board with all the red rope and the little lines and stuff in front of me to do it <laughs> but if I remember correctly Nishinti is his his replacement <laughs> editor she replaces Louise Simonson as the editor on on the on the X books and so sounds she, right and she's you know kind of editing these books at a certain point and then she kind of goes off and takes this daredevil gig and sort of goes off and does her own thing with you know there's the long shot stuff that she does obviously but this is really I think I, I, I think she's done some amazing work in her career I don't think she's ever been better than than this beautiful uh, this daredevil run but anyway i i feel like these three people claremont simonson and nishinti do a really good job of sort of like playing this 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 these pieces together i find it fascinating that nishinti's pieces of of inferno drop daredevil into inferno which is a sort of like non-judeo-christian you know, demonic sort of, you know, like like Nastier and, and Sim and these characters are are, are you know, like, for for lack for lack of a better it's word, it's limbo. Emotive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's limbo, not hell. It's comic book. It's comic book hell, right? But right, in the right. back, in the back of this story, in the back of this inferno, Daredevil. Like, if you look at this cover to this issue, Daredevil, Daredevil's not fucking with like Nastier. Like that's that's John Romita Jr.'s Mephisto on the cover of this issue. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, yeah. That that's sort of what he's up against, and it's the and it's the tone. It's in the background of every one of these issues, and I think it's really cool how like yes, Daredevil's in Inferno, but Daredevil's not messing with Mysterio. He's not messing with the Goblin Queen. This is just sort of like yeah, you know, 
this is what I do right now because I'm in this weird sort of like, you know, psychological game with the real devil. And, which and I, which I that's very much my favorite kind of event tie-in book mm-hmm. is the kind of book that almost becomes a character piece for yeah. what does it mean for this character to be in the middle of all this. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you have to, like Daredevil doesn't have to run into any of the X-Men. It's yeah. enough for him to just be in the city while it's happening. Yeah, he's literally a character who lives in Hell's Kitchen in the middle of Hell taking over Manhattan, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's good. It's a good, it's a good issue. And honestly, I, I, I just really enjoy watching you two enjoy this issue. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you obviously love it a lot, and that's great. I love it when people love comics. It's, it's, it's what comics are, you yeah. know? And to be fair, I, I did like this Daredevil issue more than the previous Daredevil issues we've read. And to the writer's credit, she does like really get this visceral sense of Inferno more than I think any of the other books do. Well, the X books are like, all so um, focused on the big picture uh-huh. that that it, it sort of requires a book like this to, to let us get a, a sense of what effect it's having on specific people. And I think the closest we came to that in any any other comic nurse crossover is actually the Bogdanoff power pack. Absolutely, yes. Which is really blowing my mind. I'm saying that, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's the thing about this issue is like Inferno's happening, right? It's it. Everybody's in the middle of it, but how some people are just like, eh, that's what happens. <laughs> this but is what even like. like the the radio report where it's like yeah some some mutant x team or the something is doing yeah, things yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just like you know what this is what it's like to live in new york this is what it's like to live in manhattan this is a day in hell's kitchen right and yep. what's the name of the issue i forget the, the the title for the issue but i beat it but it was we again beheld the stars there you go yeah yeah exactly what a what, what a great title what a great issue and I just the the final panel of Daredevil smiling for the first time all issue mm-hmm. just gets you right here. It's great, perfect ending. <laughs> really nice. Let's go ahead and are we taking a break on this one? Or are we going right on to the next one? We'll just go straight through because we we You're we've right. been doing two issues per segment. So okay, work. that's fine. Yeah. So our next issue and our last issue for this episode is X Factor number thirty-seven. This one has a cover date of February of 1989, written by Louise Simonson, penciled by Walt Simonson, inks by Bob Wyacek. The colorist is Petra Scotese, letterer is Joe Rosen, editors Bob Harris and Mark Grunwald. And so the cover on this one has the Goblin Queen raising a crying baby over her head as the X-Factor and demons are struggling at her feet. Pretty, pretty cool, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And X-Factor is in the middle of Manhattan. They're fighting demons, basically where we left them last time. And it seems like the demons are starting to become less of a problem. Caption that says that's thanks to the efforts of the new mutants and exterminators, as we saw in the issues we just covered. There's a lovely two-page spread of 
the whole team in action as the city sort of warps around them. Nastir pulls himself together using the, the transmode virus that he acquired from Sim. A, a plot point from previous issues is that he has absorbed the technology of a living computer that has the ability to process magic spells. Previously, as a demon, he could not cast his own spells. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It just has to be done. I mean, when you talk about that, it's just, it, it just happens. My finger slipped. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, previously, he needed a human to, to cast spells for him, but now that he is himself a living computer, he can process magic himself. It was a really bad joke in Exterminators. It all happens because the one of the kids mentions the computer having a spell check. Ooh. Yep. Yeah, I'll allow yep. <laughs> Jean Grey senses a strange intelligence nearby that wants Scott's baby. A demon swoops in and gives the baby to Nastir, who says the Goblin Queen will be pleased. X-Factor goes off in pursuit. More demons attack and they fight. While Nastir's demons distract the X-Men, Nastir teleports away. And just as Scott is reacting in horror, Madeline Pryor in full Goblin Queen getup appears above them, holding baby Nathan Christopher Summers. Cyclops says they can't attack her, it's not her fault, she's being controlled by the demons. He's not quite reading the situation properly. Madeline says that the baby will be called Nathan because Scott hates that name. Which is a detail I'd forgotten. Scott's in shock because he thought Madeline was dead. Madeline sort of tears into him that he probably always thought she was dead so that he could not feel guilty going back to Jean. She continues using her powers and, and summoning more demons so that they're attacking all X-Factor. Jean is trying to use her psychic connection to the baby to calm him down, which Madeline also does not does not appreciate. She attacks Jean, but Nastir jumps in the way and deflects the blast. And Nastir basically says that even though he is her servant, that he awakened the power in her, he found her son for her, and has sort of been manipulating things from behind the scenes all along. But now things seem to be going wrong, that, that she is proving more powerful than he can control. Jean Grey tries to slow down the demon's attacks by sort of funneling them using her telekinesis. The rest of the team leaps into action and there's more fighting. The Goblin Queen blasts Nastir out of the way and even though she's not quite turned out the way Nastir expected, as long as she keeps playing her part, he's okay with it. And he advises her to stay her hand, to not a, to not take out all of X-Factor now, because if she waits, the events will be far more satisfying. Madeline tosses the baby to a pair of demons hovering nearby, but they miss and don't catch him. Jean flies up to try and grab the baby, but Madeline grabs him again instead, and Jean is tackled by demons. And Madeline vows to destroy the baby. X-Factor pleads with Scott that they need to use all of their power and not hold back to take out the Goblin Queen. 
and Cyclops relents that they must save his son, but they should try to spare the Goblin Queen. Madeline continues ranting about how she never had a family, even the illusion of a family was stolen from her. She's shattered Scott's family once before when he left the X-Men to be with her, and sort of the implication there is she's about to shatter the family again. And just as X-Factor tries to regroup, the X-Men and Wolverine's hand reaches in from off-panel, saying that he needs to make sure that Jean is real. What a cliffhanger. What a cliffhanger. That is... That's good stuff right there. However, Jesus Christ is Scott and Madeline's relationship toxic. <laughs> oh my god. Yep. Yep. And just think how it'll be once Havoc gets here. Oh no. Oh, you're not wrong, but oh god, no! Havoc's such a kin, man. I mean, he really is. Like, he, he's exactly, yeah. No, man, I. I <laughs> he even shows up with a crazy costume that, like, shows off his abs. Yep. <laughs> no, like, this is an interesting issue. You know, Simonson does this book. But both the Simonsons on this book together are both very good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it just it just it's just a hard sort of read because it's so it's got to get you from and, and I think issues like this are sometimes why people don't like crossovers because mm-hmm. yeah th- this one just kind of gets you from point A to point B and, and that's kind of that's kind of what it does. I mean. Well, and even in getting from point A to point B, it's beginning in the middle of action and it's ending in the middle of action. Right. There's... And, you know, yeah, it, it, it just tees up the next thing. A, a very big thing, Claremont writing these characters next issue with everybody kind of coming together since the Dallas stuff is, is a big moment. But, you know, like the stuff that's happening in X Factor, unfortunately, kind of gets dropped in this issue. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in X Factor. Like, Bobby's powers are all out of whack. Yeah. I think, I think, I think, you know, Hank's done the thing that where Hank gets dumber, the stronger he gets, you know? Um, and that just resolved at the beginning of Inferno. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. But, you know, Archangel, right? Or Death, as, as he's yep. called at this point, like literally has one line in this issue. Mm. Yeah. And, and he previously had a whole issue that was just about all his. Yeah, yeah. There's the issue where Candy Southern is murdered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, which right. is part of Inferno. Yeah. But, but yeah, since then, he's barely spoken maybe three lines. Yeah, yeah. He, he literally, I think he literally only has one line in this. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's a good issue. It does what it needs to do. But, but it feels like there's a, it feels like it does the same thing like three times. There's a lot of starting and stopping, starting and stopping, starting and stopping. It's and, also, uh, it, well, it, it's fight scene. They stop and yell at each other for a little bit. Fight yeah. scene, they yell some more, and then more yeah. fight scene. Well, and, and just listening to your recap where you're like, and then Madeline throws the baby, and then Gene goes to get the baby, but Madeline catches the baby again. And it's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I will say the happiest I was during this entire issue is when Beast finally rips that god-awful costume off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he's, yeah, I do wonder how long they've been sort of waiting to do that. Well, you just gotta yeah. imagine, like, <laughs> like is that, 
And he's so happy, like that smile on his yeah. face. Well, that Let much... us do the rest. <laughs> but that much fur on your spandex just has to be uncomfortable, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, and I, I think I said this when we first started covering Inferno, I love, overall, I love the Simonson designs for the X-Factor team. Like, when I when I think of Scott Summers, I think of that blue and white costume. Yeah, um, yeah. But the Beast costume never worked for me. Mm-hmm. It's because... It just doesn't look right for him to not to be wearing trunks. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it looks okay when he's, I guess it looks okay when he's human. Mm-hmm. And and they're, they're all, they all have the, like, the most... They all have like the motif, you know, like everybody's got the the right. the, the the same design, just with. It's the kind colors. of the the prototype for for the new X Men look. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but uh, but once he goes back to being the Beast, the the blue, you know, the blue Beast, it's it's hard to not want to just see him in those uh, yeah in the trunks doing doing his Beast stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like. I always like how Perez used to draw him, and of course the colors just, just drew it, just colored the same color as his fur, and I'm like, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're implying something here. I, I, I'm getting the <laughs> feeling. Yeah. I'm getting signals. It's... I love the Beast. I, yeah, it's always, he, he's always a character who changes heights and sizes, too, you know, like, depending on who draws him, sometimes he's, like, you know, huge. Yeah, you know, J- Jim Lee draws him like very, you know, very big. Um, yeah, sort of towering but, you know, over people. Yeah, yeah. Perez, you know, Perez draws him like you know, as like I don't know, you know, five, five, seven, five, eight, or something like that, because he's always shorter than the next guy, the like Wonder Man who he hangs out with a lot. Yeah. So. Thing yeah, is it's that always just well. different. Depending on the yeah, he's like five ten, five. Yeah, he's but you know, you put him up against the Hulk, suddenly he's as big as the Hulk sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> but some, I mean, I guess it's tempting to, to want to just draw those guys, you know, those big guys fighting each other like that. But some people didn't get a chance to look at the reference sheet, you know. Yeah, I was gonna say pull up that Mahatma, right? So here's here's a thing that maybe we should touch on a little bit. This issue is the first time that Jean Grey and Madeline Pryor have been in the same place at the same time. Oh wow! They had never met before this issue. And that, that just seems notable to me. Hmm, that's interesting. Especially considering that their their next issue of X Factor is, is like pretty kind of like all of them. Not to not spoilers for anybody who's reading along, but there's there's a lot <laughs> of Jean and Madeline in the next issue. Yeah. Um, what do we think of Madeline's, Madeline's lack of her accusations in this issue? I mean, she's I thought not. I think about her costume. <laughs> I mean, we can talk about that too. Again, I mean, if we're going to talk Claire, about that Claremont costume, Claremont has guys, some preferences. If we're going to yeah. talk about that costume, i got to do it. Because, <laughs> like, because that's what that costume is. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, it, it's, 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 again, I, 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 yeah, it's, it's something. I wonder who does, I wonder who's the first to draw it. I don't know if it's Simon. I'm sure Claremont designed it. I, I bet Claremont. You think so? Uh, I don't know. It feels art. It, it feels very artisty, but it also feels very like Sylvestri, maybe. Probably I mean, Sylvestri. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I just don't know who the first one to draw it is because Sylvester is the one who I remember drawing it the most. Well, it first appears but, in an issue of X Men as a reflection in a monitor, 
in the big computer room yeah. that Ma- Madeline hung out in in Australia. So okay. uh, my guess is Sylvester. So yeah, then it does. Okay. Interesting. But as for Madeline's accusations, when does she, she finally? Yeah, sorry. Go. Ahead. She first. She first declares herself Goblin Queen. I think in X Men Two Forty. I'm looking at it now. Yeah, I think that's the first one. Yeah, she's like she's like hanging out with Alex, and then she's kind of like she kind of wears like a weird variation of it on the last page. It looks her like her outfit changes from from page from panel to panel in that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like she's sort of using her manipulation powers. Mm-hmm. And of course, the the Goblin Princess costume in Excalibur that we already talked about is sort of an echo of this design mm-hmm. in sort of its own way. Oh yeah, definitely. But yeah, I I think I I, I don't want to be like a, a Madeline Pryor was right kind of person, but at the same time, she's not wrong. <laughs> no, I mean you could blame it all on Sinister. You could try to blame it all on Sinister, but at the same time, all Sinister did is put the bait there. It's Scott who yeah went for it. It's I mean again. Again, not not to be a Scott apologist. I, I don't think this I don't think the beginning of X Factor ruined Scott Summers the way some people say it did. I, I think the thing is is that, you know I, I think I think, you know, Scott Scott's story ultimately gets gets sort of like stretched as far as it'll go, you know, to the to the point of where, you know, he is over Gene. And then somebody editorially is like yeah Gene's got to come back and then sort of like Scott has to sort of like whatever growth he's had he has to retract which sort of makes him look bad as a character but but I mean I I, I don't know it's I mean you know he did think she was dead it's just always weird that like he also knowing what he's known and all these backstory things that have been revealed about him later on when he sees a woman who looks just like his ex does it go <laughs> something's up here <laughs> like I mean I know yeah. he wants to, he wants to believe but you know yeah I mean I don't blame Scott Summers though I blame John Byrne and Mike Carlin mm-hmm. <laughs> if we're yeah, gonna yeah, say yeah. whose fault it is <laughs> yeah I mean that's Why the thing Mike like, Carlin? He, I'm, I'm, I don't know that he's, he's the editor he, was, he was editor on both on both X Factor and on Fantastic Four which is where Gene first comes Okay, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was Shooter. I thought yeah, it was I think Shooter, shooter was involved. That was the editorial yeah. mandate from above. Yeah, well, well, but, well, but shooter, John Byrne was angling for it. Shooter's the one who says she has to die, right? I think shooter's, so. I think Shooter's the one who says, like, okay, well, you know, she she destroys that planet, and ultimately, you know, there have that, to be consequences. That, there have to be consequences. So I think Shooter's the one who says she has to die. I'm not sure who says she has to come back, but I know that Byrne is the one who brings her back. I can't remember the... I'm, I'm sure there's a... It's... Comics somewhere in the 200s. Around here, somewhere yeah. around here, yeah, that tells that story, but I can't remember specifically what the... behind-the-scenes um, no, I've. It's been a couple of years now. I've heard Claremont tell his version of the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, he, and, he and Simonson, ultimately, they're the ones who get kind of... Well, I guess I guess Bob Layton, right? Bob Layton starts... X-Factor, yeah, Layton's but, involved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess 
those guys are the ones who sort of get saddled with the aftermath of it because whatever growth, you know, Cyclops has sort of like, you know, gone through up to that point, you know, has to has to be sort of, you know, I don't know, just kind of thrown out. And then you're left with like whatever And, and this that's is. a thing that, that we've sort of talked about over the course of this event is a lot of the most pointed things that Madeline Pryor has said kind of feel like Chris Claremont speaking through Madeline Pryor. Sure. And and this this isn't because it's not Claremont writing, but it's a pretty good approximation of what she said in the Claremont issues too. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't doubt that Simonson doesn't have some input or has has this similar you know similar opinions about the way these characters have been dealt, you know, or the hand right. these characters have been dealt. Yeah. And that, like you said, that, that cliffhanger. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I was just going to say that that I, I do like the Goblin Queen as a character. I like Madeline Pryor as a character in both the, the X books and the broader Marvel universe. So I I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing that events played out the way they did. It. All right. Quick question. Do you- it, it it did it did put Cyclops in a, in a difficult position in terms of what writers could do with him for a while. One I don't one that you know people have argued he's never really recovered from. He moves from being Scott the stick in the mud to Scott the asshole, or or, or could, the or the deadbeat dad. You know I think that's the thing that yeah. sort of makes yeah. him the, the 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 sort of like that that's the thing that sort then of then he ran away. That he runs away, and he seems to run away to go be with his one true love, despite having a wife and child. I think that's the that's the trick, and it's like, well, you know, I guess I guess a, a, a guy who appears to be and who has always sort of been presented to be, you know, responsible almost to a fault. You know what I mean? For him to suddenly like do that feels, in some ways, almost accurate. You're like, I, I, okay, you know, yeah, this is him cracking a little bit, you know what I mean? Him running off and doing this thing and, you know, all this life of responsibility and, you know, you know here, here's this, 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 this one chance at, like, you know, to, to, to get back the one thing that I think he ever thought he had. But, but again, it ignores the fact that he should be feeling that way about this, his wife and child as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's another example of as we get older, our perspective on these comics changing. You know, as a kid, I was like, of course he goes back sure. to Gene. Gene's the one true love. But, you know, as Chad, right. I, think, and, I think we get older and we have our own kids. We're like, yeah. you're dad, dude. Dad up. Yeah. And, and I think at the time, Marvel was banking heavily on... Jean is the fan favorite. People will just be so happy that she's back that they'll forgive the rest. Yeah. Well, and then they do they do they do go out of their way to sort of try to give Cyclops the out. You know, they go back and, you know, Madeline's gone and the the baby rattles there or whatever it is and the assumption is that she and the child die at Dallas with the rest of the X-Men and you know, right. I, I I don't remember how hard Scott mourns in X-Factor. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. <laughs> you know, he might shed a tear or two and then he's like, so Gene, you go to the beach or whatever he does. I don't, I don't remember what he does. But <laughs> it's tough. You know, this, that, that's a, that's a very, that's always been a very, that, that's heavy stuff for these characters to yeah. carry sometimes, you know? And, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. 
it's it's a lot. But James, you you were talking about the cliffhanger at the end. Yeah. So that cliffhanger, that's probably a good place to give our listeners their homework for the next episode. Love listeners. Next episode, we are looking at Uncanny X-Men number 242, X-Factor number 38, Spectacular Spider-Man number 148, and Uncanny X-Men 243. So that's your homework for next episode. Chad... Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. It is always a pleasure having you on to talk comics with us. Hey, it's always a pleasure hey. talking comics with you, whether there's a microphone on or not. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel the same way, guys. This is this is a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on, and uh, yeah, I know this. I, I, I had a I had a blast. Yeah, and of course, listeners, make sure you are going out right now to pick up Deadpool: Batter Blood. In fact, once you've done so. You know what? Respond to the me- to the tweet for the tweet or the blue sky, the message somewhere that we post some stuff with your picture of you, of your copy yeah. of Batter Blood, because we want <laughs> and, Chad to see it. And of course, <laughs> if you've if you've not been reading the series, chances are your local comic shop can hook you up with issues one and two as well. Exactly. And of course, if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so on most of the social medias. We're on Twitter. We're on Blue Sky. We're on Instagram at Tomb threads, of Ideas. Apparently. Oh yeah, we're on threads too. Yeah, at Tomb of Ideas. I did set the threads. I keep on forgetting to post to the threads. I put I, I put the new the episode. Like the, the episode before this one is there. Because hey! I put it there. <laughs> Good job, Trey. <laughs> uh, of course on Facebook at <laughs> Facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. And of course, if you want to be old fashioned, you can always reach out to us by email at Tomb of Ideas at gmail.com. And of course, you can find our entire back catalog on Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X. They've got a lot of other great shows too. The Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord, Horror Business, uh, The Shame List, all kinds of great stuff. So check out Cinepunks.com. Chad, again, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, love listeners, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb members, Excelsior! <laughs>